1: Welcome to the New Books Network.
0: Hello, this is Bernardo Batislazo for New, New Books Network. And in this podcast, our guest is uh, Ghassan Mohsin, who's an assistant professor at the Hong Kong Institute of Humanities and Social Sciences at the Department of History. He has been uh, educated at the University of Cambridge, where he received his uh, bachelor's and a PhD in history. Gazan, thank you very much for being with us today.
1: Yeah, thank you, Bernardo. Thank you for having me.
0: So, Gazan, before we start talking about your, your book, which is uh, Foreign Banks and Global Finance in Modern China, um, can you tell us a little bit about yourself and how you became interested in history and how you became interested in researching uh, Chinese history?
1: Sure. Um. So I basically started out um at undergraduate level, uh, mainly studying Chinese or Chinese studies. Um. Because I hadn't. So for a long time, we had interested in China. But whilst I was doing that, I um, um, uh, also got interested in history. Um, and kind of on the side, uh, with a few kind of elective courses that we as we could at that time um start to. Um, study history, modern Chinese history, mostly, so 19th and 20th centuries. Um, and, um, yeah, then, uh, you know, being interested in that, I kind of uh, started uh, to think about graduate study and uh, got into uh, the PhD program at Cambridge. Um, and uh, that's kind of how I um, uh, how I ended up with Chinese history. Um, it's a bit more, well, um, I mean, the, the, the because I don't really have a background in... Um, in uh in in finance or economics or anything like that certainly before the phd so that was um getting to this actual topic of, of foreign banks in in modern china was more of um well as it happens sometimes it, it was kind of relatively random because I, I kind of found um our particular archives um, stumbled upon the the archives of the deutsche bank in, in frankfurt in germany and that's kind of how i uh, how I got interested, or I came upon a topic and then got interested in it, um, as it uh, often happens for historians. I think we kind of stumble upon interesting archives, and then that becomes our research topic.
0: And, and that is, uh, yes, it's a little bit of a, of a, of a you know, um, luck as and and uh, um, <clears throat> sometimes chance as as, as things uh, go on. But nonetheless, as a historian you know how, how was it that you were interested in 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 banking because you 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 make all of these you know you you take a first look and we will we'll talk about that in a moment you take a fresh first look both at the history of banking and the history of of uh, um, early 20th century China you um, all of this around one particular uh, um, institution, which is the Deutsche Asiatische Bank, the DAB. So, um, wouldn't it perhaps been easier for you to look at the um, more bigger things like political history or the relationship between Germany and, and the Chinese government, or you know that that's what a, you would have probably expected from from uh, somebody coming with that background. But nonetheless, you, you move into business history, you move into this economic history of and financial history of, of, of China. So how, how was it that, that you gave that um, step?
1: Yeah, I think what I found particularly interesting about looking at finance and looking at banking and foreign banking in China sort of in the late 19th, early 20th century was that, well, first of all, yes. I mean, I think there is um, obviously quite a lot of research done on, you know, Sino foreign relations at the time, kind of diplomatic history, political history. Um, so we actually know quite a bit about that. And um, when then it comes sort of to the economic side of things, we also know quite a bit about like trade between China and um uh, um, and and the West and Europe, um, you know, starting from the first Opium War, um, the 1840s, and then all up uh, all the way up to to um to one into the 20th century, there have been quite a few studies on that. But I think where there has been relatively little attention paid um, is kind of uh, the financial side of things. I mean, and and I think I mean we know this from. Kind of, um, you know, business historians, economic historians, of course, sort of the last few decades before World War One were like kind of this heyday of globalization. And finance was really important for that. You kind of have uh, um, all these multinational banks that um, uh, kind of, uh, you know, facilitate, I think we could say, um, uh, the... Um, uh, kind of this, 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 these all these flows of capital, commodities, and so on. Uh, during this heyday, the first wave of globalization, um, just before World War One, and I kind of wanted—I mean, I got interested to, in, in how China fits into that kind of picture. Like, how can we understand China um, within this first wave of modern globalization, and in particular within financial globalization during this period in time? So, as I said, there—you know—there are there are studies out there, plenty of them, I think that. Tell you how this worked for trade, but how it worked for finance. Um, I think um, there really wasn't that much out there, and it just seemed to be an interesting story to me. I wanted to know more about that, um, and then particularly know more about. I mean, and this is something that I think, as long as I've been interested in Chinese history, has interested me is kind of the interaction between foreign actors that came to China and Chinese actors, and how, how they kind of made you know sense of uh, of each other and and of these kind of two different worlds that that came together. And looking at this from the perspective of finance seemed particularly interesting, as I said, because clearly finance must have played. I, I knew from the start, it, or I thought, you know, there must have been a, an important role for finance in some way. Um, but um, how exactly that worked, um, yeah, I, I was sort of very curious to, work, uh, to, to kind of work that out. And that is kind of what uh, particularly got me interested uh, in, in looking at foreign banks uh, during this period.
0: And it's also one of the strengths of the of, of the work because certainly finance, uh, financial markets, became very important between the you know the Belle Époque, the 1880s, and the period that you study, which is uh, the, the the beginning of the uh, First World War. They they are intense, not as intense and and vol- high volume as they are today, but nonetheless, it's, it's something that we cannot uh, escape. Nonetheless, how would you uh, say that your work uh, is different to other studies of multinationals? I'm thinking of the work, perhaps, of Jeff, Jeff Jones of, of banks of multinationals, but certainly there is a big literature of on international business um, from a business history perspective in around multinationals. So, how, how do you think that you're contributing to, to this literature?
1: Sure. Um, I think if we look at the literature of multinationals, um, I suppose sort of one um, contribution that I tried to make was, and it probably has to do with the fact of the perspective from which I've I've kind of come or I, I came to this particular topic because I think, I mean, I, I call myself a business historian now. I think I can call myself that, but I came at this very much. So I was trained, as I said, as an undergraduate in Chinese studies and even my PhD program was very much in this sort of, Chinese studies, area studies, um, kind of that was the main approach that we, you know, we looked at things from, Uh, I was not, um, you know, my PhD was not in a business school and so on. So, um, therefore, I think I came at this whole topic from this kind of area studies, Chinese studies uh, perspective. And that also means that when it comes to multinationals and multinational banks. Um I really try to look at this from both from Chinese sources and Chinese primary sources and what do, do they tell us and how can we bring them together with Western sources, but also from the perspective of Chinese actors. So my my primary kind of um question coming into this research, and I really throughout the research, was not so much, you know, how exactly did this particular Bank, the DAB, the Deutsche Deutsche Bank, the case study, I look at how did it function in China, which, I mean, there are studies out there, I mean, there are some studies that talk about the institutional history, that are often you know, commissioned histories um, of banks that were active in China as well, um, that very much look at this just from the uh, foreign bank perspective, but I try to really um, look at this from, you know, what does this all mean for the Chinese economy, for Chinese actors, and so I think that kind of, um, I hope, uh, is, is um um, is a contribution i make in the sense of looking at yes multinationals were important in the to the first wave of modern globalization but what exactly was were the roles Was the role that indigenous actors played in my case of course in particular chinese actors and how does this kind of uh, how do these kind of two sides go together
0: We mm. we will we'll come back then at the at the role of of, of actors and we looking at this in a in a more detailed way in a, in a moment. First, let me ask you um, how you how do you bring this wealth of archives uh, that you're using together? How how did you find them, and um, how how was it that that you uh, put them together?
1: Sure. Um... I mean, I think for the, again, for the historian of China, it's always, uh, I mean, the easier part certainly was to find the sources um, in Western archives because, um, you know, unlike uh, many of the archives in mainland China, um, Western archives are generally relatively open. Um, And so I I kind of started, as I said, from the Deutsche Bank archives um, uh, in Frankfurt that uh, had some, you know, um, and I sort of came back to them uh, again and again. They were very, for, I was very lucky that they, they're, you know, one of the really best corporate archives I've worked in. They were very open, very helpful to researchers. That's kind of how where my the journey began. And then I, um, you know, I, I, started to work in, um, um, you know, in Germany and in, in the, looking at Foreign Office archives, diplomatic archives, and and in the UK also in, in corporate archives and and um, uh, in Kind of uh, the National Archives, a queue, of course, and so on. So that was relatively, I would say, relatively easy to get hold of these sources. But then I spent almost one and a half years. Um, I was lucky, actually, uh, especially given how difficult travel is now uh, to mainland China. Um, I was able to spend one and a half years in uh, in mainland China, in, in primarily in Shanghai, to just try and and kind of get at Chinese sources and the Chinese side of things. And that that involved kind of going to archives, but it also um, uh, I mean, that kind of involved looking at a lot of, um, which is kind of a spe- specificity of, of of the Chinese side of things that they are, you know, you will look at a lot of the personal papers that have been often published of important officials or bankers that my particular bank was uh, in touch with. But that took much longer in, in, sort of in the, uh, um, as compared to the Western uh, Western archives, I think, to, to uh, kind of, um, uh, get together and 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 collect the Chinese uh, Chinese sources. I should say though that I was also lucky to spend some time in Taiwan, where archives are, again are more open, and and so I could get some of the uh, Chinese side of things from there as well. But on the whole, it was kind of a um, yeah, it took quite a while, especially to get to kind of clarify the Chinese side of things, um, and and get the the relevant sources um together, but. Um, I mean, that was, uh, it was great fun at that time, of course, especially, yeah, I'm thinking now that uh, traveling, at least in my part of the world, is still a bit difficult. Um, uh, that At the time, um, it, it was relatively easy to do that and kind of travel around the world and then go to all kinds of different libraries and archives, and that was good fun, I think, yeah. Uh,
0: thank you very much. That's very interesting. Um, so I guess, or, or is it the case, you, said me, you tell me if I'm, if I'm right, that by looking at the chinese archives and uh, did you probably um, did you also look at the japanese archives i'm i'm, I'm not sure you didn't mention that but uh, nevertheless just just by looking at the chinese side of things how did that give you a different uh, look or a different perspective on on the discussion from the people that have documented this story and of looking only at Western archives
1: sure um, and just a quick note on 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 uh, so Japanese sources are not like a main like a big part of my um of the book but they also play a role um, simply because there, there are a lot of Japanese sources um, on early 20th century Chinese economy particularly and I was lucky to spend some time as a postdoc in Japan and that made looking at these sources um easier. But um, I think what the Chinese sources basically give you, I mean, I think as a historian, it's pretty straightforward. If you want to understand a particular um, actor, yes, it can be useful to look at what others have written or what others have produced kind of about, let's say, a particular Chinese official or um, how they perceive that particular official in low negotiations, say. But in the end, if you really want to get to the motivations and Uh, the kind of uh, thinking of of a particular individual, say, again, a a, a kind of a uh, a high-level Qing official, Chinese official, that uh, these bankers were um, uh, kind of... um uh, negotiating with you need to and, and to to understand what their kind of background in all of this is. You need to kind of understand um, and look at the sources that they produced, or that the, at least the Chinese side produced. Uh, and so I think that was really uh, something that I found was lacking in in much of the previous literature, and that's something um, that I wanted to bring in. What I should also um, say is that one of the points I tried to make in um, the book is that information asymmetry has played quite an important role. Um, Actually, on both sides. So uh, it's not that just the Chinese had kind of um, had advantages towards the the, the foreign bankers, but also the other way around. But in any case, one of the Points is that um, there were many things. I mean, the the understanding of how the Chinese banking sector work, how Chinese public finance worked, on the side of the foreign bankers was I was through. I would say throughout rather limited, and so this is kind of explains also why we need to kind of look at Chinese sources and and look at um, the Chinese side of things to really understand. Um, uh, what is um, what is going on on the Chinese, uh, you know, what, what the Chinese actors are doing. I think, and, and I think the the fun part, but also the at times difficult part was, of course, to bring these two, you know, bring the Western sources and the Chinese sources kind of together and try to, well, weave a narrative and weave an analysis out of that. But I nevertheless think that's, that's really important. If you just, like many of these kind of institutional diplomatic histories, if you just look at it from the... Um, side of western sources you really don't get a lot of the insights i think about the chinese actors um that you uh get if you look at chinese sources but also it's it's kind of whether that is um whether that kind of is intentional or not intentional but i think if people if you just look at for example the the, the sources of, of a particular western bank or a particular western government then you will automatically also focus on the um those that produce and those that are the focus of these particular sources, and those are normally Western actors. Uh, so that means, um, yeah, uh, I think really in terms of understanding uh, Chinese actors, or so in any case, uh, in any kind of context, the indigenous actors, that you need to also read the sources that they produce.
0: Okay, thank you very much for that, uh, Cassandra, that was very interesting. Now, <clears throat> looking at, at the actors and complementing those sources certainly gives you that uh Different perspective that you mentioned. but your story is has many layers, no? Because you're looking at the at the at the banks, you're looking at, at at the people inside the banks, but you're also in in a way looking at the, how these different um, institutional actors or more countries are interacting with with uh, the end of the uh, of the Chinese uh, empire, and and at the same time that. You know, there are different dynamics in Europe and North America with with the U.S. trying to go abroad, Germany trying to catch up with the imperial game, and, and so on and, and so forth. Now, <clears throat> um, having said that, something that probably uh, needs to be emphasized is that at this point in time, although, as we said, uh, finance becomes uh, more important, um, there's still a... a, a a fact or 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 uh, an organizational routine or something that it, that makes uh, banks or apart and that is that the pricing of risk the assessment of risk the issuing of loans is very much done inside banking organizations and this is done by not not only uh, within the organization but the people who are very much at the frontier at the at the at the edge at the point of contact with the with the customers, and and you know when you have a, a bank that has been financed with uh, English or American capital or or German capital, as is the the case of, of the bank that you that you are looking at, and they are many many uh, kilometers away, and the, you know uh, post or telegrams will take quite a bit of time to, to get there. It's not like uh, you can send a WhatsApp message at this point in time. Um, there has to be quite a bit of um, responsibility, quite a bit of trust in these individuals to be able to make those, those decisions. Now, if you've mentioned that uh, they don't really understand some, some of these foreign banks, how the Chinese system is, is working. So in practice, in in you know in in the day to day, how is this um, uh, information asymmetry, as you called it, and and this fact that they have to make decisions uh, on the spot, affecting the way that they are able to finance and are able to fulfill their objective of financing uh, a number of operations and and create a, a you know. What in today's languages market share in in the Chinese market? So, what are the challenges that bank managers have to be able to fulfill their their function?
1: Sure. Um, so, yes, of course, uh, I think we know that for in general, for for the time um, for this particular time period, that of course, multinational banking was intrinsically particularly risky because of the the the, the vast differences um, uh, distances, I should say. Um, uh, that were involved and uh, of course the bankers in uh, in in you know, kind of senior bankers in berlin in, in the case of my case study um they yes they had to have a certain trust in in the bankers on the spot in uh, china and uh, have trust in 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 the sense of uh, um their judgment and how what businesses they executed and so on and so forth um what i will say is that um There's a spectrum, of course. So different multinational banks in China uh, handle this differently. In the case of the particular bank I look at, um, I make the point in the book that they uh, adopted a rather risk-averse kind of business strategy. And that means that... um, the bankers in Berlin, although of course they couldn't, I mean, they couldn't kind of uh, dictate day to day operations, but they would uh, keep the people in um, Shanghai and all these other ports that the DAP uh, was operating in on a rather tight leash. And, um, you know, they gave them very um, detailed instructions um if there were any kind of bigger businesses, certainly when it came to the when it came to the bigger loan business and floating loans and and, and doing loan contracts with the chinese government that was something that was um closely uh done in cooperation with uh, bankers uh in in germany and berlin um and of course this was i mean you you're correct that um certainly postal communications was rather slow but um uh, by this time so china is connected to the kind of the international telegraph network in the early 1870s and so by this time although the telegraph of course is still very expensive but um that is something that the bankers certainly um, make use of um uh, in in kind of coordination between berlin uh, in and uh, and the china coast what i will say um is again that the particular german bank i look at it was rather risk um a verse. And I think that comes out of the kind of experience, uh, first of all, of the first German attempt to establish a bank um, in uh, China that, that happened in the 1870s, the Deutsche Bank, uh, and that failed because of the, I mean, one of the big uh, risk factors during this period is that China is, of course, still on the silver standard and uses silver and uh, the silver price is fluctuating quite a lot and that uh, leads to a lot of risk and that was one of the main reasons why the deutsche bank kind of went under uh, and had to retreat from east asia in 1875 and that combined with the fact that actually the main driving force of the german bankers to go to china again in the 1890s which is what i've kind of mainly look at was not so much the kind of trade finance and on the spot banking business but, but rather they just wanted to have a base on the spot to do loan negotiations with the chinese government and that in Turn would have been a, an issue that the the bankers in Berlin would have been involved, anyways. So they kind of wanted to keep. They don't wanted to go into too much risk um, when it when it came to sort of the daily business. And so that uh, because again, that was that was sort of something they had to build up because the loan business wasn't quite picking up. And so the bank had to, in order to survive, kind of focus more and more on trade finance and day to day business. But the initial motivation had not been that part of the business. And so that's another reason why why sort of. Um, apart from multinational banking generally being quite risky at the time, the German bankers in particular adopt kind of a very risk adverse um, uh, strategy when it comes to, um, to doing business on the China coast at that time.
0: Yeah. Thank you, Gaston. Uh, and I used uh, one 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 term that is actually a, a concept that you define. In, uh, I, I used the term in my in my question, which is a term that you define, which is frontier bank. Would you would you tell us a little bit more more about what you mean by frontier bank and how does that tie in to your to the main story or the main theme that uh, you want to draw on the book
1: sure so um, the frontier and, and frontier so the frontier obviously is in the in the title of the book and and um, uh, frontier bank is kind of a, a way um, for me of uh, trying to kind of conceptualize how um, how these foreign banks operated on the Chinese coast. So um, first, the frontier. I mean, that was that is sort of a concept that I use or that other historians uh, of China have also used to um, describe um, the Chinese coast at the time. Because, of course, what we have to say is that these foreign banks did not operate throughout China. They mainly operated in, in what were called mainly the treaty ports, um, Chinese treaty ports, uh, which were basically foreign concessions uh, or given, or China, uh, concessions given by the Chinese state to the foreigners, um, um, often forced to do so. Of course, um, the, the 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 Chinese were forced to do so, and where foreigners were allowed to live and operate businesses and so on. And that's where you know, places like Shanghai, Tianjin, Beijing, as well. That was mainly where these foreign banks um, operated, and so they were really very much limited to the China coast. Um, and at the same time, it's it's kind of this coastal area of China where you have all these different empires, including the. Ch- Qing Empire, the Chinese Empire, uh, overlap a lot of different flows of commodities, capital, uh, and so on. that all come together. Um, it's kind of a yeah, a frontier of globalization uh, as well, and that's what I wanted to emphasize. Uh, and and kind of that 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 opens a lot of opportunities for these foreign banks, but also there are certain limitations there. Yeah? They can't expand wherever they want in China, or they at least choose certainly choose not to because you know there's no, um, they don't feel they could even if they. Um, I mean, there was certainly no intention to go beyond beyond the treaty ports, and um, at the same time, there were limitations put up by Chinese actors like Chinese guilds and uh, Chinese banking associations, and so on and so forth. Um, so there were opportunities and limitations, um, and that's why I use this this term "frontier" to particularly sort of um, describe. Uh, this particular uh, space where the banks operated. Now, Frontier Bank is, of course, connected to that. I want to show that you know it was in this particular space that these foreign banks operated. But I also use this term because there is a lot of hybridity, I suppose, um, about these foreign banks. So they were foreign institutions, but they were operating in the Chinese economy. Um, they had foreign staff, but they also ha- were dependent very much on Chinese staff and um, also beyond the bank, Chinese networks and and other Chinese actors to actually operate. Um and so Frontier Bank, I basically use this term to kind of bring forward the ambiguities and the, um, uh, I suppose, the, the hybrid character of both the banks itself, themselves as institutions that were operating in China, but also uh, more generally the business and the contact between Chinese and foreign actors that was going on in this kind of liminal frontier zone of the, of the Chinese uh, ports and the China coast.
0: Thank you gasan and you've you've mentioned just a moment ago Chinese networks and and I think that your analysis is very much um, situated within the business and economic history of 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 financial markets and financial financial history but probably some people might say that you could have done more in terms of looking at the uh, racial ethnic or gender uh, aspects of of these interactions do you think that that would have been a a fair comment or was it something that you know you you really um you know would have taken the the work in a completely different direction
1: um i mean i think there's always something that you kind of uh, you know the book can only be uh, only be so long and uh um i uh, yeah I, I i mean i i don't uh, deny that at all i mean i i think um, certainly race and, and gender as well is um, things that people have certainly asked me about. And so I think, yeah, clearly there's an interest uh, in that. And um, um, uh, yeah, I mean, there, are, as with every, every book, there are certain things you uh, I think in the end have to kind of um, leave out or you have to decide what the focus of the particular book um, is supposed to be. And uh, um so hopefully, in the future, you know there will be other researchers that that look at these kind of aspects. But uh, yeah, I, I, certainly, I mean there, you have to make I think certain choices in terms of how you um, uh, focus in. What is the particular point I want to make? What is the particular argument I want to make? And I think in my case, that really was um, looking at being how how did the banking business and the the technicalities of, of foreign banking in china actually work how did the connection with with capital markets in europe worked and so that was uh the focus um, of things that 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 kind of is um i think throughout the chapters what what i focused on and so um that was the decision i make, made And i think um yeah but of course and 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 i'll i'll be glad to see um um uh, other research that hopefully uh can build upon that and and and, and develop the, these uh, these aspects that you um Mentioned further in the future.
0: So, what other of of the choices that you that you had to make? What are the things uh, you would have liked to have included that you couldn't or you didn't include? I mean, if you had the space, what what sort of thing was left out that you would have liked to to include?
1: Sure. Um, well, apart from the sort of analytical aspect um, that I just mentioned. Um, Although I think the analytical aspect is not just a matter of space, but also of how you know you tighten the argument and, and you want to, I think, focus on. You always have to make the decision, even if you had the space of adding twenty or thirty thousand words, you probably still would want to focus on a particular argument or analytical lens. But um, apart from the analytical part, I think, of course, there are a lot of um, kind of, as, as I think most historians, you know, you find a lot of interesting sources and uh, stories and kind of. Uh, you know um you know background uh information about many of the actors in the book that you would have loved to include but in the end you have to cut it because it's not quite uh important again to the argument you want to make i mean in my case i have a lot of um kind of um stories or anecdotes or um interesting details about um uh, about the the german bankers and how they interacted how their daily life what what it was like i mean things for example the my the last chapter in my book looks at world war one and kind of how this whole world of the globalized treaty ports breaks apart and and um including that world sort of the globalized world of the of the bankers in uh um in that you know they had lived in this very international atmosphere and done business in this very international atmosphere of uh, pre-World War One uh, treaty ports, of the pre-World War I treaty ports in China. And that all breaks apart. And um, I mean, I talk a bit about that, but there are, you know, there's sort of, there's lots of details that you can find of the sources how these things kind of break apart. First in 1914, China first stays neutral for the first three years of the war. But in 1914, uh, already it's impossible it becomes impossible for um uh, a lot of the german bank or for the german bankers to do business with their british colleagues although that was something completely normal or their french colleagues and so on and also on the personal level a lot of things break up break apart and then in 1917 china enters the war and um then again a lot of sino german connections that had been there as a kind of very natural thing for several many decades kind of break apart and it also has an impact on uh, on the lives of of um Well, many of the Chinese actors involved, generally foreign actors involved, but particularly also German actors involved. I mean, there were people, some of the bankers I looked at, look at in the book, um, they had spent years, decades in China. They were then had to, they were deported to Germany and they kind of returned to Germany as a kind of a stranger themselves because they didn't really you know they hadn't lived uh apart from a few short visits in germany for many many years and so um yeah this, this is a, sort of a lot of very interesting background information that i found fascinating it's great to find all that stuff in the archives but of course again in the end you kind of have to um, focus in on what is actually important for the particular argument i want to make and and uh the story i want to tell and so that's uh yeah you you never you you, you can never include all the interesting sources that you find Um, but uh, i guess that's uh that's something that most historians have to deal with
0: yes exactly and, and is this uh, the sort of the most uh, surprising or pleasantly surprising thing that you found in doing this work, or what was
1: it you mean the um,
0: what in particular what was the most surprising thing or the most surprising result that you
1: found in the in doing this work sure, um, in terms of what was most surprising, I think um, well, if I had to pick pick one thing that comes to mind now, it's certainly that I found on, on reading the Chinese sources, um, what was certainly interesting was how by the end of the period I look at, um, certainly sort of in the years before uh, World War I, um, when it comes to uh, foreign investment in China and Chinese activities on foreign capital markets like London or Berlin, how much the uh, Chinese officials actually um, by then understood foreign investors so at the beginning of the the period that i look at they actually don't really um you know the foreign capital markets still very much something new to them but by the end of sort of the as i said the last few years before world war one i think um yeah, they had quite a good idea of what foreign investors wanted, and uh, whereas the the, the I, I don't know the foreign bankers always want a lot of guarantees, they want good collateral with a lot of foreign controls um, uh, for these big loans. But the Chinese actually understand you just have to give the uh, foreign investors who are very enthusiastic about the Chinese market just something. It doesn't even have to be actually a real stream of revenue. It can be something um, uh, that you know. As long as it's something that you can write on paper um, and, and write on these bonds and write on the bond prospectus, then you're basically fine. And I think so, the way of uh, or the expertise or the way of, of the, the clever ways of how the Chinese actors can actually use and manipulate. Um, uh, uh foreign bond markets and foreign investors i think it's something that is that was very surprising to me when i found it and I, that's something that you really can only of course get from the chinese sources so if you look at the internal kind of conversations that is going on on the chinese side of, of these kind of loan negotiations that's when you really kind of uh, get 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 to that
0: thank you that, that is very interesting well congratulations on a great book and on a great story as i said it's one of those stories that is worth uh Reading because of the multiple layers at at, at which you're 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 telling uh, things and you're able to to portray uh, and and uh, as well as giving this fresh look at um, a number of of um, of things. So what is it that you're working on now? What what is your next big project?
1: Um, so with the. Um well, with, with the book out and, and, and the, the kind of mm, this project on foreign banking in China um, uh, sort of coming to an end, my new project basically um, moves a bit away from finance and moves forward in time a bit. So I look at, in particular, the Republican period. So that's 1910s, 20s, and 30s. But eventually, I want to look at pretty much late 19th century to the present day. And I look at the electrical and electronics industries. So, of course, today we know that China is a major player. Um in uh, kind of uh, the manufacture of uh, electrical and electronic goods um, but I, I want to kind of trace this back and see how these industries uh, kind of um well first of all how these kind of electrical goods first were introduced into china in the late 19th century again by multinationals so they will play a role there again um, but then how also how the chinese themselves started to um kind of uh, uh establish and 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 Create their own electrical and electronics industries, and uh, so that's that's what I'm uh, what I'm working on uh, right now. Still very much at the start of it, but um, yeah, getting there.
0: Thank you. I'm I'm, <clears throat> I'm sure it's going to be another fascinating story as well, and I hope that we can have you uh, again as a as a, as a guest in, in the new books network when when the new book is, is out. So, um, Gazan Mawzin, thank you very much for being with us today. Uh, and thank you, listeners, for being with us. Uh, if you haven't subscribed, please do subscribe to our podcast. If you are a subscriber, then please don't forget to rank us or to leave comments. That helps us a lot. You can always uh, follow us in, in Twitter and uh, New Books, New Books Network, uh, and New Books in History, and um, to get uh, into what is the latest additions to our collections. Uh, Gazan. Again, thank you very much for being with us.
1: Thank you for having me.